Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, the 2023 Zora Neale Hurston Festival season is underway, with many of the activities taking place during the last full week in January. People who follow the programming will be satisfied that Zora Neale Hurston is actually present throughout the programming. We'll discuss how seductive advertising was used to sell Florida real estate in the 1920s. Florida promoters embraced and blended the natural with the obviously artificial to achieve their vision of paradise. And we'll talk about the Smyrnia Archaeological Research Institute. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Sherelle is one of the headliners at the Zora Neale Hurston Outdoor Festival of the Arts and Humanities, taking place the last weekend of January in Eatonville. The song, I Didn't Mean to Turn You On, was Sherelle's debut single in 1984. It was written and produced by Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, who were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2022. Robert Palmer also had success with his 1985 cover of the song. For more than three decades, people around the world have marked on their calendars the last week of January to attend the Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities. Last year, COVID forced a postponement of the event until June. Despite a well-known headliner, George Clinton and Parliament Funkadelic, attendance was impacted. N.Y. Nafiri is founding executive director of the Association to Preserve the Eatonville Community and the Zora Festival. It was humbling and it was a real lesson because, as you say, for over three decades, we had oriented our audience to the last weekend in January. And uh, even though the decision that the board made was credible and uh, rational, from a marketing perspective, it was definitely a disaster because we were up against all the other events that were already scheduled for June the Funk Festival, the Special Olympics. So it has been our reasoning that unless the government says, do not come out of your homes, go into your closets, 
close down your windows. We will say for those people that want to come, you can expect us to observe the best quality of safety, but we cannot reschedule the festival away from that last weekend, the outdoor festival specifically for that last weekend in uh, January. The date wasn't the only change for the Zora Festival last year. The festival grounds were still on Kennedy Boulevard in Eatonville, but northeast of I-4. This year, the festival is moving back to the other side of the highway, but not to its most familiar space. Again, we have gone back to what is tried and true, and that's the outdoor festival of the arts along East Kennedy Boulevard. Our challenge has been, and we have to say it exactly for what it is, for over 32 years, um, we had access to the property that was formerly known as the Robert Hungerford High School property. Orange County Public Schools has been trying to sell that property, and therefore we have not had access to it. And so that really did make a challenge for us. Thankfully, the Clayton family allowed us to use what we call the preserve in Eatonville, and we were grateful for that. But this year, thanks to the Macedonian Missionary Baptist Church, we're able to use all of their open lots for what we call our larger tents. Uh, so we will be down East Kennedy Boulevard. Uh, it will be a smaller footprint, there's no doubt about it, but we are able to provide what people expect, vendors, arts and culture for children and heritage of uh, the museum, the Hurston Museum will be within the confines of the festival, the Florida Historical Society, which is a favorite for people to visit will also be in place. So I am hoping that the people will find the same quality. And of course, the main stage will be in the street, just a little bit east of the Edenville Branch Library. So we think that all the program pieces are in place. As always, the outdoor portion of the Zora Festival is augmented with intellectually stimulating programs in various venues. For the past several years, the festival has focused on Afrofuturism, a multidisciplinary artistic movement incorporating elements of black history and culture into science fiction themes. This year's Afrofuturism conference at the Zora Festival focuses on spirituality. And why Nefiri? That will be occurring on Friday the 27th of January. It will be in person, but we're also providing the uh, live streaming, the hybrid. We do not want to um, forsake our audience that is national, international, regional, who cannot get there in person. All of this information can be found on ZoraFestival.org. Again, ZoraFestival.org. The Zora Neale Hurston National Museum of Fine Arts will be right in the center of activity during the Zora Festival with an exhibit of work by Granville Carroll. He's a visual artist working with photography and digital technology. A very exciting um, exhibition called In the Finite, Infinitely, the work of Granville Carroll. That will be our exhibition through the year along with some scheduled uh, public programming to complement that exhibition. Attendees at this year's Zora Festival will also have the opportunity to take a class with Chef Jen and create a meal inspired by Hurston's work. Part of what we're doing this year is providing several opportunities for the foodies in the audience to see that food is more than just what you put in your body, that there is a context to it, 
and uh, the vegan culinary experience does amplify what it means to look at food in a different way. We're going to actually prepare the food that we eat. And so that allows for that engagement. Of course, uh, Chef Jen Ross is an award-winning chef and her cafe and eatery, Dodge and Eats, uh, has been named now for several years in the Orlando Sentinel for a favorite Caribbean cuisine. All of it being vegan, you really would never know. Main stage performers at the Zora Festival will once again appeal to people who enjoy music from the 1980s and 90s. NY Nathiri. Absolutely. We have a lineup. We've been persuaded that a lineup on Saturday and Sunday will draw a crowd. And so on Saturday, it's Sherelle and uh, Tony Terry and uh, Mr. Glenn Wiley and the Franchise Band. So that's uh, for Saturday. And then on Sunday, it is Karen Wolf and Jesse James and Jeff Floyd and Miss Coco. So we have tried to be respectful of those intergenerational entertainment opportunities. While the Zora Festival celebrates the life and work of writer, folklorist, and anthropologist Zora Neale Hurston, the event is also about moving her vision forward. I would say that you put your hand on it exactly. We say that Zora Neale Hurston as a namesake, and because she did so much with folklore, literature, religion, history, heritage, the woman had a portfolio that really encompasses a number of disciplines. And so actually, we say that the goals of the festival are to celebrate the life and work of Zora Neale Hurston, to celebrate the historic significance of her hometown, Eatonville, Florida, and to celebrate the cultural contributions which people of African ancestry have made to the United States and to the world. And so under that rubric, we feel that we are really soundly positioned. Now, I should say that the Afrofuturists recognize Zora Neale Hurston as a part of their family of scholars. It's really quite interesting to see how she is timeless in terms of the way that her research reflected, the way she wrote, the way that she visioned. So uh, remembering as well that the Zora Festival is now a season. And so in March, the end of March during Women's History Month, we will be conducting our fourth annual Africa-America Women's Economic Forum. And then in October, we will be doing the Hattitude Cultural Flair, which is an African-American and African design event. So I would say that people who follow the programming will be satisfied that Zora Neale Hurston is actually present throughout the programming. Parking is free at the Zora Festival. Children K-12 are admitted free of charge. Adults can find ticket information at ZoraFestival.org. We spoke with N.Y. Nafiri, founding executive director of the Association to Preserve the Eatonville Community and the Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities.
This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime at myfloridahistory.org to find out about upcoming events like the Florida Historical Society Public History Forum being held in conjunction with the Florida State Genealogical Society Conference May 18th through 20th in Lakeland. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Connie, when looking at advertising from previous eras, it's interesting to think about who these advertisements were targeting. One Florida Historical Quarterly writer looked at the marketing of Florida in the early 20th century. Nicole C. Cox's 2010 article on the Florida land boom shows us that there is always something more we can learn about the past, even when the study focuses on a piece of history that has been researched again and again. Drawing on insights of gender history and environmental history, Cox, a Ph.D. student at the University of Florida at the time of publication of the article, examines the promotional and advertising literature published during the 1920s Florida land boom in her article titled, Selling Seduction, Women and Feminine Nature in 1920s Florida Advertising. As Cox explains, quote, previous studies focused on the phenomenal business aspects and real estate ventures and ignored the potential meaning behind advertising, end quote. Examining promotional literature, advertisements, sheet music, magazine articles, and travel books, Cox argues that, quote, advertisers deliberately and repeatedly marketed Florida and its environment as a feminized paradise where alluring women cavorted among equally enchanting landscapes, end quote. As advertisers, promoters, and boosters gain control over the imagery, they reinforce the subordinate status of the environment and women. The advertisers who marketed Florida did so through the eyes of men, culturally constructing myths about the state that emphasized Florida's feminine environment and the omnipresence of attractive female figures in this environment. Connie, in addition to using this feminine imagery, many of the people marketing Florida focused on both real and imagined natural beauty, right? They did. In the words of Burton Rasco, a 1930s journalist and literary critic, quote, The Florida land boom followed the general pattern of inflation and collapse that characterized all money-mad mass manias, but was unique in one respect— It was the only one that was founded upon an aesthetic ideal. The Florida land boom had its beginning in a vision of beauty, end quote. Although the writers of the period extolled the natural diversity of the state, Cox says, quote, developers, salesmen, and advertisers had no qualms about manipulating and engineering both the state's environment and its image in the interest of progress and profit. They then marketed the finished product as natural Florida. 
In doing so, Cox says they confirmed what environmental historians William Cronin and Jack E. Davis argued, that nature is a profoundly human construction and that Florida is an imagined place. It has long been so, with outsiders historically acting as the center of its image. In the 1920s, then, Cox wants us to see that, quote, Florida promoters embraced and blended the natural with the obviously artificial to achieve, if in image only, their vision of paradise. And Connie, as you've pointed out, according to Cox, advertisers of the Florida land boom promoted the state with idealized women as well as idealized nature. Yes, Cox argues, quote, that Florida advertisers consistently feminized nature, proudly extolling Florida and her possibilities, end quote. In doing so, they embrace stereotypical behaviors and characteristics they ascribed to women and attributed them to nature. At the same time, they also adopted language that viewed nature from a male perspective. That language emphasized dominion over nature, the power to transform nature to meet economic demands imposed on the land by men, and the virility to tame the land and possess its beauty for the right price. Cox argues that the feminizing language adopted by Florida promoters was not that associated with Victorian women, pious, pure, domestic, and submissive, but that of the so-called new woman that came to characterize modern America, young and bold, with short skirts, bared shoulders, revealing bathing suits, painted faces, and bobbed hair. Nowhere was this advertising in greater evidence than in Miami, the town that climate built, the place where summer spends the winter. The bathing beauty, she says, emerged as one of Florida's most publicized and enduring symbols. And along with the images of, for the time, scantily clad women basking on Florida's miles of beachfront came the beauty pageant. Jane Fisher, the wife of Miami developer Carl Fisher, played an important role in the creation of the Florida bathing beauty when she wore a racy, fashionable, form-fitting 1920s bathing suit that exposed her bare legs on Miami's beaches. In her autobiography, she admitted, quote, The beauties were a big part of the inspired ballyhoo designed to bring buyers to the new land where Carl and his cohorts were waiting, end quote. Music in the form of advertising ditties also played a big role in luring investors to Florida. Like the beauty pageants and the advertising slogans, the songs and the published sheet music focused on a feminized environment and the beautiful women who populated it. The Booster Record and Publishing Company in Tampa emerged as an important purveyor of promotional music, and Cox provides several examples of their work. She opens the article with an image for one song, Tampa Steps Out, Words and Music by Frank M. Smalley. In the image, which was the cover for the sheet music distributed by the Tampa music firm, A 1920s woman is applying lipstick while gazing down at a compact mirror. Rather than her own image, however, the mirror shows the Tampa skyline. Lest buyers of the music fail to understand the image, the words of the song emphasize that the woman personified Tampa. The lyricist tells them, Miss Tampa always struts her stuff with perfume paint and powder puff. Miss Tampa wears a winning smile and winks her eyes in latest style. 
1924, songwriters Sam Gold and Dave Waters composed a song about Tallahassee, where the local women were mighty classy. As Cox notes, the songwriters stressed the loving touch Mother Nature applied to Tallahassee, putting on her bestest gown, suggesting perhaps that the beautiful environment also produced beautiful women. Cox concludes that while Florida boosters sold the state through a gendered lens, feminizing the lush, natural environment and marketing attractive women as features of the landscape, although neither the women nor the environment portrayed in the ad campaigns existed naturally in Florida. Or, as professor and journalist Diane Roberts concluded in an essay titled Selling Florida, quote, Other states sell stuff they make, widgets, cogs, stuff they grow, corn, cotton, or stuff they think up, dot-coms, insurance. Florida sells itself. And a century later, advertising really hasn't changed all that much in some cases. Thanks, Connie. You're welcome. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. This is Florida Frontiers. Archaeologists are dedicated to discovering new information about Florida's British period. Holly Baker has this look at the Smyrnia Archaeological Research Institute. Rebecca Harris is a registered professional archaeologist. She is also the executive director and founder of SERI, or Smyrnia Archaeological Research Institute. She told me about recent cardiographic discoveries pertaining to Smyrnia settlement a colony of indentured Mediterraneans established in 1768 in British East Florida by Scottish physician Andrew Turnbull. Today, the town is known as New Smyrna Beach. I understand how people get so excited about archaeology. I feel that same way every single day of my life, and I'm working in my hometown, New Smyrna, and people always ask me, what's the coolest thing you've ever found? And I'm like, well, that's qualified because what I find very interesting is very different for what other people might find interesting. But at the same time, every single thing that I find, it tells another piece of the story. And we often say in in archaeology, it's, you know, a thousand piece or 5,000 piece puzzle, except you don't have a picture of the box. So you're putting all of that together. And I mean, that was my goal with actually founding SERI, Smyrna Archaeological Research Institute, as a nonprofit, was to really take all of that history, the archaeology, and synthesize it so that we have a better understanding of what has been done and uh, what it means to us going forward, because it won't always be there. And so much has been done in the last 20 years that's very significant, especially to the colonial experience, the British colonial Smyrna settlement. One recent development in archaeology is the use of aerial photography to help reconstruct the past. In World War II, the state of Florida was used for aerial training, and not just for pilots, but for training photographers, for spying, basically. 
there's no other way to put it. It was to garner information for World War II. And so that's where remote sensing became an actual field of study because remote sensing is, as it sounds, it started with photography, now it's with satellites. It's taking pictures from above to be able to understand what's going on with land. And these aerial photos are really, really valuable. The scale of the photography is amazing. These are really high level, photographs. And I've used them ever since I was in graduate school at FAU. FAU was one of those locations that also did remote sensing work. And so we had a complete series of the coast there. The coast makes a perfect training ground for remote sensing and for aerial photography. While researching the Old Stone Wharf archaeological site, Rebecca Harris realized that aerial images of New Smyrna Beach could also be used to reveal additional information about Smyrna settlement. And I looked at it and I looked at it again and all of a sudden I saw it completely differently. And I realized it was not perpendicular to our rectangular land survey. And I was like, wait a minute, that's on a diagonal. And yet every map that maps that area of New Smyrna shows it as being completely perpendicular. And I'm like, okay, I mean, and it's very common even for archeologists, we draw these, these cartoonish maps where we just throw a north arrow to the north on the top of the page. So north is uh, top of the page, south is bottom, and then we orient everything on that page usually. That's just a general convention of cartography that we use. And I was like, huh, that's really interesting though. The ground truth actually seeing this aerial photograph is showing me that this is not perpendicular to our township range section. So I started taking readings from that, just using some basic geometry and Cartesian coordinates. And I said, what, what, what's going on here? I started looking at archeological sites, even though the map from Smyrna, as it's laid out along the river, it shows it as a nice rectangle and all that. That's not how it is when we find it. The British, the general survey of Great Britain obviously was using a completely different standard for how they oriented themselves on the landscape. The royal land grants are oriented as these diagonal parallelograms, and it seems that the settlement pattern completely follows that. I think it can be a dating methodology, so when we find additional structures, when that foundation doesn't match the rectilinear, if it's rectilinear, we, you know, we can safely say it's from the modern territorial period and, and more recent. And if it's something different, then it has to be Spanish or British. So much of the archeology span has been done since the 1990s, since I graduated from college. It's exciting, it's an exciting time to be a, um, an archeologist in Florida because we're finding new things and we're finding new ways to look at old things, that things that have been excavated years ago, we're re-evaluating with new technologies and finding out so much more. To find more information about Smyrna Archeological Research Institute, or SARI, go to nsbarchaeology.org. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker public history coordinator for the Florida Historical Society, and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, you can visit us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org and find us on Facebook. 
Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Connie Lester and Holly Baker. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.